Let's pray together. Father, we, we like to pray in one sense because we know you are good and we know you love to answer. Uh, you love to hear us spend our mouths. And so we, uh, we pray. And as we were just singing, sometimes a light surprises. We pray that you would surprise us this morning, that you would reveal something from your word to us, that you would reveal your goodness to us. Lord, your word is like a light that shines in this dark world. And so open it for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was converted to Christianity and joined a charismatic church when I was 21, um, I met a guy a couple of years later when I was 23 who told me what he thought would be the next major doctrine that would sweep through the church. And if you're a charismatic, you're always waiting for something new to sweep through the church. Sorry, charismatics. And the, the new doctrine was going to be Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. And I remember thinking, yeah, right, that will turn into, since Christ is in me, I am now, in some sense, divine, and it'll be some new age message. And I think, for me, that's the genesis of never really pursuing the doctrine of union with Christ. I had found a heavenly Father who loved me. I had communion with the Holy Spirit, and I was thankful to Jesus for His sacrifice in becoming a man, keeping the law perfectly, and dying a substitutionary death in my place. And I knew I was in Christ, but I took that to mean He's my bridegroom, He's my beloved, He's my brother, one with whom I was very close. So I was not surprised to read this recently in a standard systematic theology. This is from Augustus Strong's uh, systematic theology, and he says, the majority of printed systems of doctrine contain no chapter or section on union with Christ. And the majority of Christians much more, much more frequently think of Christ as a Savior outside of them than as a Savior who dwells within. This comparative neglect of the doctrine is doubtless a reaction from the exaggerations of a false mysticism. And we'll talk about what that false mysticism is uh, in a second. Can you guys close those doors back there? Thank you. <clears throat> and so when, when Ryan asked me last month to preach, this is the doctrine I went for, union with Christ. And so our passage comes from John 14, verses 15 through 20. And I chose this passage because it says, as plain as language can say, that we are in union with Christ. Let me set up the context here. It's during the last week of Jesus' life on earth. He had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he is enjoying a last Passover meal with his disciples. Knowing he came from his father and was shortly returning to him, he washes the disciples' feet as an example of love for them to follow. He sits back down and tells them that he would be betrayed by one of them. Judas leaves. Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking? What is going on? But then he starts saying some really strange things. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so we can be together. And you know the place and you know the way. What? Of course, Thomas says, we don't know either of those things. I, what does he mean? 
He's going to prepare a place for us. We know that when we die, we all go to the place of the dead, Sheol. I guess he's going to die and go to Sheol, and I guess he's going to prepare us something down there. And then we know the way. I guess he's saying we're going to die too and be with him. Then Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. The way? How can a person be a direction How can a person be the truth or the life? How can another person be your life? He tells them, if they've seen him, they've seen the Father. Huh? He tells them, my Father is in me, and I am in him. The Father in me does all the works, you see. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Oh, and because I'm going away, you'll do greater works than me. Whatever you ask for in my name, I'll give it to you. My Father and I are going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He will be inside you forever. And so, at the ending of these bewildering thoughts of Jesus, we have our passage, which is a kind of summing up of what he had said before. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So from these words of Jesus, we learn at least these things. He wants us to keep his commandments. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Jesus lives in us. And it's this last part I want to highlight this morning where Jesus says in verse 20, you disciples are in me and I am in you, which I said before is as plain as language can make it that we are in union with Christ. And so I have a simple two-point outline. Uh, The first point, the validity of the union, it's true. And the second point, the explanation of the union, it's weird. All right? So we proceed with caution. The validity of the union, it's true. Believers are said to be in Christ uh, numerous times in the New Testament. I'm an ex-high school uh, teacher. I taught high school English for 10 years. So classroom, how many times do you think, Paul says, in Christ or in him in the New Testament. Anybody who wasn't there on Wednesday night, the other night, want to have a go at it? Give us a guess. Oh, he got it from the front of the bulletin. I hate it when that happens. Dan Fisher always reads the front of the bulletin. There's always that guy in the high school class. So, yeah. What was that one about sliced bread? I said one time in a high school class, I said, that's as, uh, what do you say, this is, what, what's the phrase, as sliced bread? Uh, that's what? I said, I said in class, that's the best thing since sliced bread. Kid said, sliced bread was invented in 1927. And you know what? He was right. I looked it up. So it was only the best thing since 1927. Okay. So, as Dan says, 164 times Paul uses in Christ. I'll just give you two of the most famous ones. Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. One writer said that for Paul, in Christ was like a shorthand for being a Christian. Oh, is that guy a Christian? Yeah, he's in Christ. Maybe we should start talking that way. We sang about being in him in our song of assurance just now. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And we're going to sing in our closing song, Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus, long ere time its race begun. To his name eternal praises. Oh, what wonders love has done. One with Jesus, by eternal union, one. Conversely, Christ is said to be in the believer. We are in Christ. He is in us. Romans 8 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And then we have the strangest one ever, uh, Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ, according to Paul, lives his life within us so that we can point to this as the dominating fact of our experience. It's not so much I who lives as it is Christ that lives in me. Okay, now honestly, aren't we feeling a little bit like the disciples? Like, huh? That's outside of my experience. At least it's outside of my experience most of the time. But God is so merciful. He doesn't leave us in our confusion he draws pictures for us. So the doctrine of union with Christ is illustrated by these well-known comparisons. And there are four of them in the New Testament. The first one is the stones that are part of a house and their foundation cornerstone. And you can find that in Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, and 1 Peter 2. Think about this. If someone asks you, where is your church? Do you say... Well, the foundation is at 1220 South Blakely, and uh, the walls, oh, they're also at 1220 South Blakely. No, of course. No, this is one. This is a church. And in the same way, Christ and, and you are unified together. The stones are built out of the foundation and are cemented together with it. As a stone rests and clings, as it were, to the foundation, so we rest and cling and press into Christ. Now, because rocks aren't living, Peter calls us living stones, but it's still the same thing. Okay, so we have the stones, part of the walls, and a foundation. We're in union with Christ. The next one is in John 15. We have the vine and the branches. Now, when you're doing a sermon, you do some strange reading. So I read, I am the least scientific person I know, but I read about sap this past week. Uh, so let me tell you what I learned about sap. How does sap get from roots to the flowers and the fruit? All right? Do we have any, like, weird sap people out there? Okay. 
I don't think Dan can answer this one, so. <clears throat> Quote, Xylem sap flows from the roots of the vine to the branches and leaves. It consists primarily of a watery solution of hormones and minerals. Phloem sap is produced in the vine and adds sugars to the mix. How does it work? How does sap flow? Scientists aren't sure. I, I love this. When you, when you actually, th we, we live in a strange world, you know, and when you get down to the, again, I'm the least scientific person I know, so I just love wonderful things. But when you get down to the, the basics of anything and you start, it's very, very strange existence is. Okay, so scientists aren't sure. And I appreciate their humility in their work, uh, their humility in admitting that they're not sure. So here's their, the current explanation for how sap flows. Most plant scientists agree that the cohesion tension theory best explains this process. But multi-force theories that hypothesize several alternative mechanisms have been suggested, including longitudinal cellular and xylem osmotic pressure gradients, axial potential gradients in the vessels, or gel and gas bubble supported interfacial gradients. Union with Christ is a mystery, just like sap flow is a mystery. How he influences us is a mystery, but it's real, just like sap in a vine. Saying it with reverence, Christ is perpetually oozing his influence into his people. It's like a, it's like a baby connected with the mother in the mother's womb. There's the um, umbilical cord. And through the umbilical cord, the baby gets all necessary oxygen and nutrition from the mother. That is strange. All right. Because I am uh, strange and goofy and a child of the 70s, um, I thought of Amy Grant's one-minute song from 1977 called Grape, Grape, Joy. Anyone? No? Okay, there's one. And I thought since I had kids here, I was going to just read it like a, like a serious poem, but it's not. It's a goof, so I think I'll just sing it, which probably won't work, but we'll try it. <clears throat> Dan, you got the words up there? Okay, here we go. Let's try it. Sing along if you know it, Cindy. Uh, I am a small and lonely grape clutching to the vine, waiting for the day when I'll become my Savior's wine. Oh, wouldn't French cuisine just yearn it? I've eternity to ferment. Knowing me, I'd end up ripple in a cellar of Chablis. Wah, 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 wah. Are you a small and lonely grape clutching to the vine, waiting for the day when you'll become your Savior's wine? Don't give up, hope ye heavy laden. You don't want to be a raisin. There's a grape, grape joy in Jesus in the vineyard of the Lord. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I deserve that. Okay, the third comparison is the husband and wife as one flesh. A husband and wife join their bodies together and become one flesh. 
as it says in 1 Corinthians 6.17 about us and Jesus becoming one, he that is joined to the Lord Jesus is one spirit with him. Referring to Genesis 3, Paul says in Ephesians 5 this, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's think about that. God opened Adam's side and took out a rib. From this rib, he made Eve. And Adam said, this woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, she was literally made from me and so is one with me. We are Christ's rib. We are being remade from him and we are one with him. Um, uh, I got a rib story just to show you how the rib and the body are all one, or uh, the rib influences everything. And we, in a sense, influence Christ. When we hurt, He hurts. My wife uh, teaches at OSU. She teaches business communications now. And most of her classes are in the classroom building. So on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I take her to work. And I let her off at, what is it, University and the Strip, Washington. And I let her out and we kiss and say sweet nothings to each other, and then, you know, she goes off. And we did that a couple of weeks ago, and as I get about three or four blocks down the road, a rain shower just comes, and I thought, ooh. No, you're not laughing, are you, Sarah Jane? Uh, so I thought, I hope, I hope she made it, because I don't know if she did. So anyway, come to find out, she comes home kind of limping, and oh, how was your day? Not good. So... She got almost to the student union when it started raining, and then she tried to vault up the stairs, and at the top of the stairs, she kind of did this. You know, there's a lot of people around, and, you know, crash, coffee, books going everywhere. So, anyway, she got put together, but for two, literally two weeks, and every day a day, she was fine unless she moved. You ever been like that? She was great until she moved anywhere. It's like, oh! <laughs> well, yeah, We're one, we are Christ's rib. He, he sympathizes with us. Last one, last comparison. The head and members of one body. And you find this a uh, couple of places in the New Testament. Christ is the head of the body. We are individual members of the same body. Or as Thomas Carlson likes to call them, body parts. Christ is the head we are the body parts. Sweet. Then we are connected. We are one in a sense. What the head thinks, the body does. He is in us. When you stub your toe, does the head know about it? Yes. We are in him. How does the soul influence the brain that influence the body and vice versa? No one really knows. But no one denies that it happens every minute of every day. Um, Hollywood, I, I like movies. Hollywood loves severed head movies. Anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Good. Uh, heads that remain alive and functional without a body. That's impossible. To imagine us unattached to Christ or imagining Christ unattached to us is a severed head movie. It's impossible. 
Okay, so we have four comparisons. A foundation and its walls, vine and branches, husband and wife, head and body parts. This union that these four metaphors illustrate is a spiritual union, obviously, not a physical one. Christ stays perfectly divine and sinless at the right hand of the Father. I stay on earth with everything I do and think spotted with sin. So we ask the next obvious question. What is spiritual union? And that's the second part of the sermon, which is the explanation of the union. It's weird. You know, it's easy to ask questions. Um, it's much more difficult to answer them. And we're, we're walking into the deep end of the pool now with weights on. So here we go. When you talk about mysteries like the Trinity or the two natures of Christ or union with Christ, it's a lot easier to talk about what it's not than what it is. And so let's start that way. The first thing it's not. Union with Christ is not a union of essence or person so that the divine and human natures of Jesus are so merged into mine that we're no longer two distinct persons. Jesus has come into me in such a way that I don't exist anymore. Wrong. That's the mystical error. We're not Christified or we're not godded with God. One uh, poor deluded follower of the 16th century mystic Valentine Wagel told another disciple after he heard of this union with Christ, I am Christ Jesus, the living word of God. I have redeemed thee by my sinless sufferings. Boo. Yeah, get out of here. No, Christ's divine nature is not in us. Don't say, I didn't know it, but I find that I'm omniscient. And of Christ's perfect human nature, don't say, since Christ is in me, I will never sin again. No. On the other hand, union with Christ is not merely a union of love and sympathy, like a union between a teacher and his pupils or between a friend and his friend. In that case, Christ is reduced to a good leader, and we are loyal followers. Goldilocks says, this porridge is too cold. Of the other one, she would say about the mystical person, this porridge is too hot. All right. A third idea is untrue, and that's this idea. The church, the church, capital letters, is the depository, and union with Christ is passed on in the sacraments. Someone threw an incense stick into that porridge, and Goldilocks says, bleh. Okay, here are some thoughts to bring us closer to what it is. Think about it this way. Christ is the representative head of the church. All spiritual blessings are deposited in Him, Ephesians 1.3, and flow out of Him. He says in John 5, For as the Father has life in Himself, so has He given the Son to have life in Himself. He is full of life, and when He takes hold of us and raises our life into His, there is truly a living union between Him and us. He has the unsearchable riches. It pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Now, I'm not trying to say that the Father and the Spirit don't contribute anything, but have you ever noticed they both love to brag on the Son? and set him up as the center of spiritual blessings. Not just, he died on a cross, so we worship him, but all spiritual blessings come from him. 
Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, He, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall declare it to you. He shall take what's mine and declare it to you. John Calvin on this verse, uh, John 16, 14, says this, We receive the Spirit in order that we may enjoy Christ's blessings. For what does He bestow on us? That we may be washed by the blood of Christ, that sin may be blotted out in us by His death, that our old man may be crucified, that His resurrection may be efficacious in forming us again to newness of life, and in short, that we may become partakers of Christ's benefits. Nothing, therefore, is bestowed on us by the Spirit apart from Christ, but He takes it from Christ that He may communicate it to us. <coughs> In a word, the Spirit enriches us with no other than the riches of Christ that He may display His glory in all things. So, the Holy Spirit is the bond of our union. Christ is in heaven. We are on earth. How do, how do we get together? By the Spirit. 1 John 3, 24. By this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. 1 John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. We know that Jesus' human nature was conceived by the Holy Spirit, as we say in the Apostles' Creed almost every week, and He was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure while on earth as a man. We also are anointed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And even though with a much less measure than Him, it's still the same Holy Spirit. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. The Holy Spirit is the sap, be it said with reverence. <clears throat> Almost done. Last page of the outline here. Let's take one example. Joy. Joy. All right? Jesus said in John 15, 11, right after the vine and the branches metaphor, He says, These things have I spoken to you so that my joy might remain in you. By the way, if you have a dour Christ, you don't have the real Christ. He wanted His joy to remain in us. In John 17, 13, He's praying to the Father and He says, Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy is an attribute of our lovely Lord Jesus and one of the thousand gifts He imparts to us through the Spirit. Okay, so we have union with Christ. It's very strange, but He's working right now in us. What do we do with this? The first thing, and probably the most important thing, is just believe it. Faith is, first of all, a gift of God, a piece of treasure hidden in Christ. It enables us to appropriate, it enables us to get what is given to us in Christ. Faith reads and ponders these statements about union with Christ and allows them to shape our thoughts. The second thing we can do is grow in our knowledge of it. Begin to name the benefits in Christ's storehouse and thank Him for them. The third thing is to grow in our experience of it. Begin to ask Him for spiritual gifts and spiritual fruits. He has them all. Let's seek them at His hands. Uh, to end... Rather than pray, I'm going to close with the words of the Apostle Paul. This will act as our closing prayer. Okay, so I'm just going to read this together. 
Uh, I think it's too long for a congregational reading, so I think I'll just read it. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.